Now let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And we're going to talk about this. Is anything worth dying for? We're going to talk about the beheading of John the Baptist today. What a tragic story. But it's a tragic story with a happy ending. Because in the end, of course, John the Baptist ended up in heaven. And for every Christian, you know, we, we really live joyfully ever after. It's like a funny story I heard about a little kid that was in a pet store. He was going to pick out a puppy. And there was this big box of furry puppies, you know, jumping over each other. And there was one particular puppy that just was wagging its tail furiously. The little boy said, I want the one with a happy ending. <laughs> and when you choose Jesus, you choose a life with a happy ending for all eternity. A number of years ago, I remember watching the news and there was a protest against the war in Afghanistan. As you know, there's all kinds of anti-war protests. And the reporter asked one of these protesters, would you ever be willing to go and fight for your country? He said, absolutely not. And they asked him why. And here's his answer. He said, because nothing is worth dying for. So is that true? Is there nothing that's worth dying for? I don't believe that. John the Baptist didn't believe that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And it's going to be a little different kind of message because I'm going to tell you the story and even the rest of the story. And then we're going to draw some life lessons from the main characters in this story. So here we are, Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. You're welcome to stand with me as we read this portion of the Word of God. King Herod heard about it. About what? Well, about all the miracles of Jesus because Jesus' name was, had become well known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, no, he's Elijah. Still others said he's a prophet like one of the prophets from long ago. When Herod heard of it, he said, John, the one I beheaded, has been raised. For Herod himself had given orders to arrest John and to chain him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. And John had been telling Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias held a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not because Herod feared John and protected him knowing he was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard about him, he would be very perplexed and, said, and yet he liked to listen to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and none of it is accidental. It is all intentional. And I know you want to speak to us today through this section of your, God, of your word. And may we have ears to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, be seated. Now, you know, the New Testament only provides a few verses about this incident in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But the good news is we have lots of extra biblical sources about the details of this event and the family of Herod the Great. Josephus wrote about it. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote about it. And even the early church father Jerome wrote about it. And Cassius Dio, another Roman historian. So we know a lot of details about this story that are not in the Bible. Now this would make an exciting drama. So first of all, let's just introduce, number one, the characters. As I said, this would be a, a drama. Movies have been made about it. I wouldn't be surprised if Netflix did a binge-worthy series on it because it got all the details and intrigue of uh, sex, murder, and lies. So the first character, let's meet Herod Antipas, an arrogant ruler 
Now, there are lots of Herods in the Bible, and it's easy to get confused. The word Herod means it's the basis of our English word hero. They were considered to be heroic, but they were anything but a hero. I mean, Antipas was more like a zero. So let's start with his daddy, Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the man who was on the throne when the wise men came and said, where is he born king of the Jews? Herod was a great builder, but he was also a very violent man. If you remember, the wise men knew he was in Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem because the rabbis under Herod the Great read the book of Micah and the prophecy. So they headed to Bethlehem to worship him. And you remember what Herod said? I'm going to go to Bethlehem to worship him also. But he was lying because actually he sent soldiers up there and they slaughtered every boy toddler. And, you know, he was the kind of guy, Herod the Great. He trusted no one. He had several wives, several children. He murdered several of his wives, murdered several of his children. He had these palaces built all over southern Israel, four or five that were just massive that you can visit today. Every one of them had a swimming pool. And when Herod wanted to kill somebody, he'd invite him to a swimming party. (laughs) And then he'd have some of his servants just hold them underwater. That was his way of just killing them. He actually wanted to kill Herod Antipas, his son, and didn't trust him. But Herod Antipas was saved when Herod the Great died before he could actually kill him. So when Herod the Great died, he had four sons, so he divided the territory of Israel between them. And uh, Antipas had an area up in Galilee and over into what is current-day Jordan and a little bit of southern Syria. So he was a tetriarch. He was a governor of these areas. So why was he called a king? Because he was the man who would be king. In order to be a king, you got to marry somebody of royalty. So he goes down to Arabia and marries the daughter of Tacitus, Tacitus I'm sorry, uh, Arius IV. She was much older than him. And according to the records, she wasn't very attractive. She just, he just married her only to have a royal title. So that's Herod Antipas. Um, number two, Herodias. She was a wicked woman. Now, I call her the Jezebel of the New Testament. She was the granddaughter of Herod the Great. Now, Philip was a son of Herod the Great who didn't get into politics and said he became a businessman in Rome and became very wealthy. Well, Herodias had already been married. She divorced her husband. Then she went to Rome to visit Philip, who was her uncle, and she seduced him and married him. You say she married her uncle? Yeah. And a while later, Antipas decided to visit his brother in Rome. And so he goes to Rome, leaves his Arabian queen back there in Galilee. And when he gets to Rome, Herodias has decided she's bored with Philip, her uncle. So she seduces Herodias, I mean, Herod Antipas, and they go back to Galilee. So wait a minute. Antipas was not only her uncle also, he was actually her brother-in-law. Can you believe this? This gets more twisted than the Kardashians. I mean, it's crazy. And so the Arabian queen, she leaves and goes back to her daddy. And he is very angry with his two-timing son-in-law. So that's Herodias, a wicked woman. Then her daughter, number three, Salome, was a victimized daughter. In other words, most of you know the plot of the story. She dances a seductive dance in front of Antipas. And she wasn't the daughter of Antipas. She was the daughter of Philip and Herodias. And you know what? Her mother was so wicked. She must have taught her this seductive dance. And the word that is used for daughter here for Salome 
is the word that means preteen. Same word used for the daughter of Jairus, who is 12 years old. Now, the Bible doesn't give her name, Salome, but many other extra-biblical references tell us that was her name. All right, finally, we come to the real hero, John. John the Baptist, God's faithful prophet of God. He was the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one that said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, John the Baptist was a strange man. He was a creature of the desert. He took a Nazarite vow, which means he never cut his hair. And we're told that he wore camel's hair clothing. I mean, he, he shopped at Camel Klein. We're told that he only ate locusts and wild honey. So he would visit the local McDesert restaurant and say, I'll take a McLocust burger heavy on the honey. And the guy asked him, would you like flies with that? Sorry, you don't have to put up with it much longer. <laughs> so he was the one that baptized Jesus. Remember when Jesus came and asked John to baptize him? John said, no, no, you got it wrong. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, I'm going to do this for righteousness sake. What does that mean? Did Jesus need to be baptized? Absolutely not. He never sinned. I think Jesus was setting an example for us because he knew that 2,000 years later, we would be asking people, according to the Bible, who followed Jesus Christ to be publicly baptized as a profession of their faith. Well, he was such a bold preacher, prophet. He said to Philip, I mean, he said to Antipas and Herodias, it is neither lawful nor moral for you to be married to your brother's sister. And that made Herodias so angry. She said, kill this Baptist preacher. She said, no, I don't want to kill him. But he did have him arrested and chained in prison. We know it's at Machaerus, which was a prison near the Dead Sea because Josephus uh, identifies it. And you can go to the ruins today and you can still see the iron uh, chain holders in the stone walls. Can you imagine this desert prophet being put in a little jail cell, it's like putting an eagle in a birdcage. It's like putting a whale in a swimming pool. Well, with these characters, let's move on to the plot of the story itself. I call this the action. Lights, camera, action. Two scenes. Scene one is a birthday party. It was Herod's birthday, so he invited a lot of people in. Now, Josephus tells us that Herod had two main weaknesses. He loved wine, and he loved dancing girls, and there were plenty of them that night. In fact, let's pick up with chapter 6, verse 22, if you should have your Bible open. An opportune time came on his birthday when Herod gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. When Herodias, his own daughter, Salome, came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. The king said to the girl, Ask me anything you want, and I'll give it to you. He promised her with an oath, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, you know what's funny about that? He didn't have a kingdom. It was like he was governor of like four little areas. And, you know, I've looked at the geographical footprint of that area, and it's about the size of Smith and Gregg County. That's how big his kingdom was. It's like somebody saying, I'm the king of Smith and Gregg County. I'll give you half of my kingdom. He didn't have a kingdom to give half at all. He was just bragging. I can imagine Salome. Oh, really? She was probably thinking, maybe I can get a pony. Or I can get new sandals, a new gown, a new necklace. So she goes running to her mother. Mother, mother, 
Herod has asked me for anything. She said, I want you to ask for the head of that Baptist preacher, and I want you to do it now. So this young daughter, in verse 25, it says this, At once she hurried to the king and said, I want you to give me John the Baptist's head on a platter immediately. I can imagine Antipas sobered up in a hurry because he really believed this was a man of God. So scene two is the dungeon where John the Baptist had been in prison for a while. This great Baptist prophet who liked to be out preaching and telling people to repent and be baptized, confined to this prison cell, and he hears the footfalls of the soldiers as they come toward his cell, and as they unlock the door and open it, he sees the six-foot-long broadsword that the soldiers use only for beheading. And he knew that his life was about to end here on earth. They probably put him on his knees and told him to lean over. And there was a swish of the sword, the glint of the sun on the sword. And they separated his head from his body. And we read this in verse 27. The king immediately sent for an executioner and commanded him to bring John's head. So he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl. Then the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard about it, they came and removed his corpse, as a word that means a body without a head, and placed it in a tomb. Well, what an amazing story. You know, there have been many works of art based upon this scene. One of my favorites is by Onario Marinari, the Italian artist, in 1670. If you're ever in Minneapolis, this is in the Minneapolis Art Institute. You see young Salome there looking at the head. You see Herodias described there, a picture there, and, and then Antipas holding the hair of John the Baptist's head. You know what Jerome tells us about this scene? Jerome writes that her hatred was so great against John the Baptist that after his head was cut from his body, she pulled out his tongue and stuck a needle through it, as if to say, you'll never preach again, you Baptist prophet. So he gave his life because something is worth dying for. So I want us to learn a lesson, a life lesson from all three, four of these main characters. Number one, here's the lesson from Herod Antipas. A guilty conscience is a cruel companion. Don't you know this haunted Antipas for the rest of his life? Because even when he heard word of Jesus doing miracles, he said, oh, no, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This guy was picturing some headless prophet going around doing miracles. I can imagine he woke up at night with his night clothes soaked with his perspiration, and he never got over this act of violence. He had a guilty conscience. God has given every one of us a conscience to know right from wrong. And at one time, all of us have a guilty conscience. You know why we have a guilty conscience? Because we're guilty. That's right. The Bible says we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should never have a guilty conscience because that's one of the things Jesus did to cleanse your conscience. You see, when, when you came to faith in Jesus Christ, he took away the penalty for every sin you'll ever commit and every sin you'll ever commit. And God loves to forgive sin. Even in the Old Testament, he said, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. God says, I'm going to take your sins and put it behind my back and remember them no more. 
He said, I'm going to take your sins. I'm going to bury them in the very depths of the sea. He said, I'm going to separate your sins as far as the east is from the west. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, don't you let the accuser of the brethren make you carry around a guilty conscience. Here's the second lesson we learned from Herodias. Hateful anger spills out and hurts those close to you. You know, her anger toward John the Baptist poisoned the life of her daughter. And the lesson we learn here is that whenever we sin, we never sin in a vacuum. It always affects those closest to us. You know, sin is like a pebble dropped into a smooth surface pond. The ripples go out and touch so many different people. So what's the rest of the story about Antipas and Herodias? Well, you remember that Arabian king, Eretus? Two years after Jesus resurrected, Eretus attacks Antipas' territory in northern Israel, completely conquers Antipas' army, claims that territory. So Antipas and Herodias have to flee to Rome, where they think they'll find refuge. But when they get to Rome, they were convicted of treason. And the emperor Caligula exiled them to the area of Gaul, which is current-day France. And in a sad end of the story, the man who would be king died in total obscurity. We don't even know when he died or where he died or where he's buried. I guess the worst part of his punishment, he had to take Herodias with him. (laughs) Here's the third life lesson from Salome. Be sure your sins will find you out. In fact, that's what the Bible says in Numbers 32, 23. Your sins will find you out. I imagine she was haunted also by this act of violence for the rest of her life. Because we're told by the uh, Cassio Dio, the Roman historian, what happened to her. She went to Rome, and she was in several failed marriages, miserable. One day, she and a party were on vacation in the Alps, and they came to a frozen river. And they're walking across the frozen river, and the ice breaks, and she falls through into this swift-moving water below. And some of her party tried to rescue her. And Cassius Dio says, in a strange twist of fate, a jagged piece of ice severed her head from her body. Wow, what an end to this tragic story. And the Bible says, if you sow violence, you'll reap violence. Galatians 6, 7 says, God is not mocked. Whatever person plants, that's what they're also going to reap. Finally, what's the life lesson we learn from John? Well, the main lesson we learn is there are things worth dying for. You remember the protester who said nothing's worth dying for? That's not true. Let me tell you three things that I believe are worth dying for. Number one, I think freedom is worth dying for. And I thank God for the men and women who served in the American military and played the ultimate sacrifice to preserve and protect our freedom. The reason we're here today worshiping freely is because thousands and thousands of Americans have died to preserve our freedom. But you know why? Because they believe, and I believe, and I believe you believe, that freedom is worth dying for. You know, the, the war, the battle that turned the tide of the Civil War was the Battle of Gettysburg. And when Abraham Lincoln went there to dedicate that national cemetery, uh, Edwin Orr, gave a two-hour speech that nobody remembers anything about. 
And then Abraham Lincoln gave a speech that lasted less than two minutes, four score and ten, you remember it. And toward the end of the speech, this is what he said. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here. Now, that was wrong because we're, we're talking about it even today. While it can never forget what they did here. From these honored dead, we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave. And I like the way he puts this, the last full measure of devotion that we highly resolve these dead shall not have died in vain that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from this earth and thank God to this day this freedom has not perished we are still the recipients of those who died who did as Abraham Lincoln said paid the last full measure of devotion. Let's never forget, freedom is not free. And I think it is good for us to honor the memory of those who died on Memorial Day and remember our wonderful veterans on Veterans Day. Freedom is worth dying for. Number two, our, our family and friends are worth dying for. Uh, I think many of you in here, if you were asked upon to give your, if you were asked to give your life for your family members and you could take their place, I think many of you would say, yeah, I'll step up and take their place. And Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In one of his books, Chuck Colson tells a story about a Japanese POW camp in World War II. Uh, as they ended the day of labor, the Japanese guard counted the shovels and said, we are one shovel short. Somebody has stolen a shovel. Who is it? And if somebody doesn't admit it, I'm going to shoot every one of you. According to this story, an unknown, unnamed 19-year-old POW stepped forward and said, it was me. The guard immediately took a pistol and blew his brains out, only to discover a little bit later they had not lost any shovels. They had just miscounted. So what, what does it take for a young man like that to say, you know what, I'm going to step forward and give my life for my friends? You say, I wish I had a friend like that. Well, you do, and his name is Jesus. And he is a friend of sinners, and he died for you. And finally, let me tell you something else worth dying for. That is our faith. I think our faith is worth dying for. And John the Baptist proved that, and thousands and hundreds of thousands of martyrs have proved that. Did you know the greatest time of Christian persecution in the world today is at this very moment? Christians in many countries are dying for their faith. And I believe that one day in heaven, we'll meet John the Baptist and we'll meet those Christian martyrs and we'll thank them for their sacrifice. So here's a rhetorical question. Would you be willing to die for Jesus? And I've discovered through the years, a lot of Christians that say, yeah, I'm willing to die for Jesus. Well, here's the practical question. If you say you're willing to die for Jesus, are you committed to live for him every day? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good and bad examples we learned from this story. And I pray that as a result, we'll all be committed to love you more dearly and to serve you more faithfully. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if there's anyone here or on watching on live stream and you don't know the Lord, please allow me to lead you in a simple prayer of faith. And you just repeat this prayer after me silently in your heart. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'll never be good enough to earn heaven. God, thank you for sending Jesus to die in my place. Right now, Jesus, I invite you into my life to take control.
Thank you, Jesus, for coming into my life. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.